All right, guys, here we are at the very end of a long stretch for the first chapter that, or first test that we have covering chapters one through seven. This is chapter seven, the skeletal system. So I'm going to start at um, the second page of this chapter on page 120. We're going to look at functions of the skeletal system. So they're going to provide an internal framework of the body, and they're attracted to the bones, or attached to the bones, and the inter, um, internal organs are found in the cavities surrounding the bones and skeletal muscles so we have support we also have protection they protect the soft tissues that are located inside of the bony cavities and bone also contains a vital tissue red bone marrow and it is a blood cell forming tissue it produces red blood cells which are important for what oxygen Okay, so we also have movement. Muscles are anchored firmly to bones, and movable joints in the skeleton make such movement possible. Um, we also have storage, so they serve as a safety deposit box for calcium. When the amount of calcium in blood exceeds its normal level, calcium moves out of the blood into the bones for storage. Um, they can also move in the opposite direction. Okay, so calcitonin, or CT, is from the thyroid gland and increases mineralization of bone, thereby producing red, uh, or producing reducing blood calcium levels and then the parathyroid hormone or pth um is from the parathyroid gland and it counterbalances the effects of ct by decreasing calcium in the bone therefore increasing the blood calcium level um some cavities inside bones also store fat so i guess that's where they get big boned from <laughs> So we also have hematopoiesis. Um, the term hematopoiesis um, is used to describe the process of blood cell formation. So hemato meaning blood and poiesis meaning making. Blood cell formation is also a vital process that is carried in red bone marrow. Red bone marrow is a soft connective tissue inside the hard walls of some bones and protects or produces both red and white blood cells. So we're going to look at growth structure of bones. The so bone types, there's four major types. You have a long, short, flat, and irregular. So long would be your humerus or your arm bone. Short would be your carpals or wrist bones. Flat would be your frontal skull bone. And irregular bones would be your vertebrae or spinal bones because those are kind of crazy looking. Um, some scientists also recognize an additional category called sesamoid or like the sesamoid seed or round, which may develop within a tendon. So an example of that would be your kneecap or your patella. Okay, now we're going to load down and look at the structure of long bones. You have your diaphysis, medullary cavity, epiphyses, articular cartilage, periosteum, endiosteum. So the diaphysis or shaft is the long tube made of a hard compact bone, hence the rigid and strong structure, light enough to weigh, light enough in weight to permit ease. Um, move ease of movement so when I think of diaphysis or the shaft of it I'm also thinking of the hair um uh the shaft of the hair is the longest part of the hair so that can help you remember the diaphysis then you also have the medullary cavity the hollow area inside of that diaphysis of a bone contains a yellow bone marrow it's inactive and fatty form of uh, marrow found in an adult skeleton epiphyses is the end of a long bone the red bone marrow fills in these small spaces of the spongy bone inside of the epiphyses and some yellow marrow may appear as a person ages Articular cartilage is a thin layer of hyaline cartilage um, covering the epiphysis. It functions like a thin, smooth rubber cushion would um, if it were placed over the end of bones where they form a joint. And so then we're going to look at peristone, uh, periosteum. I'm so sorry. Strong membrane of dense fibrous tissue covering a long bone everywhere except joint surfaces. So where it is covered by an articular cartilage. Endosteum is a thin membrane that lines the medullary cavity. So these um, are kind of hard to explain uh, through a podcast, so I would definitely check them out. This is going to be on figure 7-1 on page 121 of your book. 
Okay, so now we're going to look at the structure of flat bones. Flat bones such as the sternum or breastbone, the ribs, and many skull bones have a simpler or simpler structure that most than most long bones. They um, have a layer of cancellous bone between the outer layers of compact bone, and the cancellous layer is called diplo. All right, now we're going to look at the microscopic structure of bones. The bones of skeletal system contain two major types of connective tissue, bone and cartilage. So bone tissue structure, um, the outer layer of bone is hard and dense, and this is usually called compact bone. So compact bone appears solid to the naked eye. Um, the individual or inside of the individual bones is called cancellous bone or spongy bone. And we kind of talk about this in some uh, chapters before this. They kind of look like lattice. So cancellous bone or spongy bone, um, the cavities are filled with a red or yellow marrow. And the beans that form the lattice of spongy bone are called trabeculae. Um, compact bone does not contain a network of open spaces. It's organized into numerous structural units called osteons or haversian systems. Each circular and tube-like osteon is composed of calcified matrix arranged in multiple layers. And this is called a concentric lam uh, lamella. The circular la uh, lamellae surrounded the central canal or haversian canal, and this contains blood vessels. The central canals are connected to each other by transverse canals, sometimes called Volkmann canals. Um, and bones are not lifeless structures. With their hard, seemingly lifeless matrix, they are living bone cells called osteocytes. And osteocytes mature bone cells. They're mature bone cells that are um, were formerly active bone-making osteoblast cells, which have now become dormant, meaning they're not moving around. They're not doing what they used to do. So these osteocytes lie between the hard layers of the lamellae in the small uh, little spaces called lacunae. Okay, note that um, tiny passageways or canals called um canaliculi connect the lacunae with one another and with the central canal in each osteon and nutrients pass along extensions of the osteocytes from blood vessel in the central canal through the um, canaliculi and are distributed to all osteocytes of the osteon um, blood vessels also from the outer peri uh, periosteum enter the bone and eventually pass through transverse canals and eventually to central canals. That's a little confusing. Um, <clears throat> so this is all having to do with the structure of compact bones. So now we're going over to cartilage tissue structure. Cartilage both resembles and differs from bone. As, well, um, as with bone, it consists more of intercellular substances than of cells. Innumerable collagen, uh, collagenous fibers reinforce the matrix of both tissues. However, in cartilage and fiber, uh, the fiber are embedded in the firm gel instead of in the calcified cement substance like they are in bone. As a result, cartilage has a flexibility of a firm plastic rather than a rigidity of bone. So we see this when we eat like chicken wings. Um, the little kind of chewy but hard part on the end of it is cartilage. So cartilage cells called, are called chondrocytes. Um, as with osteocytes of bone, they're located in the lacunae. And cartilage lacunae are suspended in the cartilage matrix, much like air bubbles in a block of Swiss cheese. Because there are no blood vessels in the cartilage, nutrients much, uh, must diffuse through the matrix to reach the cells. Because of this lack of blood vessels, cartilage rebuilds itself very slowly after an injury. Okay, bone development, making and remodeling bone. This was really confusing when I first saw this. I'm like, how do you remodel a bone? How is it going to change? Well, this has to do with your growth. So when the skeleton begins to form um, in a baby before its birth, it consists of not bones, but cartilage and fiber structures shaped bones. Um, these cartilage models become transformed into real bones when the cartilage is replaced with calcified bone matrix. So this is consistently remodeling a growing bone as it changed from a small cartilage model into the characteristic shape that we see in an adult. Um, so these 
bone-forming cells are called osteoblasts, and bone-reabsorbing cells are called osteoclasts. Um, the laying down of bone matrix is an ongoing process. So osteoblasts first lay down organic um, collagen fibers if needed, and they also release a solution of inorganic calcium salts that crystallize in, on the fibers. The fibers reinforce the matrix to withstand twisting forces, and the mineral crisps calcify to make the bone hard as bone. When osteoblasts become trapped between the lamellae of a uh, hard bone matrix, they stop forming bone and are called osteocytes. So osteocytes resume their bone-making activity when osteoclasts or an injury remove the surrounding bone. Osteoclasts release acids that dissolve the calcium crystals, and this has two effects. The bone, um, hard bone matrix is removed, and the calcium ions are released from bone tissue to diffuse into the bloodstream, thereby raising blood calcium levels. Um, so when a bone is mechanically stressed from the pull of a muscle, the osteoblasts are stimulated to strengthen the bone at the location to resist the stress of pulling muscle. For this reason, athletes or dancers may have denser, stronger bones than less active people. Um, so endochondral ossification. Um, many bones of the body are formed from cartilage models, and this process is called in, um, endochondral ossification, meaning formed in cartilage. Um, so, ultimately, it becomes ossified, forming small centers within a developing bone, and these centers of ossification are located in the epiphyses at the end of the long bone and forming the larger center located in the um, shaft of the bone or the diaphysis. So, the area of cartilage called epiphyseal plate remains between the epiphyses and the diaphysis as long as growth continues. Growth ceases when all epithelial cartilage transforms into bone. All that remains is epithelial I'm sorry, epiphyseal line that marks the location where two centers of ossification have fused together. Physicians sometimes use concept of bone development to determine whether a child is going to grow anymore. They have an x-ray study uh, performed on the child's wrist, and if it shows a layer of epiphyseal cartilage, they know that the additional growth will occur. However, if it's not, um, then um, the growth has stopped and that the individual has obtained adult height. So we're going to move down to intramembranous ossification on 123 at the bottom. Um, some bones, such as the skull, are formed by calcification of fibrous membranes in a process called intramembranous ossification. So these are soft spots called fontanelles, and these are in a newborn baby's skull. Um, you can actually see a heartbeat through a fontanelle. So um, next time you hold a baby, um, an infant, sit very still and watch the top of their skull, and you can actually see their heart beating through it, it's pretty cool, it's because this hasn't hardened yet, and these are called fontanelles. Um, as intramembranous ossification processes, a hard bone plate forms to complete a flat bone. Um, and so now we see over here on 124, the top of the baby's skull, where it says fontanelles are soft spots, that's where you would see the heartbeat come up. Okay, so now we're going to go over to axial skeleton. So the um, skeleton has two divisions, axial skeleton and appendicular skeleton, and I think I went over these in chapter one or two. So, um, axial is going to make up the bones of the skull, spine, and chest, and the hyoid bone in the neck. Um, and the bones of the upper and lower extremities or appendages make up the appendicular skeleton. These are going to consist of um, upper extremities, shoulder, pectoral, girdles, arms, wrist, hands, and the lower extremities, hip, pelvic girdles, legs, ankles, and feet. And the way that I remember this is axial skeleton is going to be everything that's not the lower and upper um, extremities. And when I think of it, uh, appendicular, I'm going to think of Applebee's. I can go to Applebee's and get an appetizer with my appendicular skeleton, meaning my hands. Okay. 
Um, so we're going to go over to page 125, and now we're under skull, the regions of the skull. So the skull contains of eight bones that form the cranium, 14 that form the face, and six tiny bones in the middle ear. I bet you didn't know there was bones in your ear. Um, so we're going to go over to page 126 now under sinuses. These are spaces or cavities inside some of the cranial bones, and four pairs of them um, are frontal, maxilla, sphenoid, um, which are also paranasal sinuses. So when you palpate for these, you what you should be able to find them and someone can tell you if there's pain or discomfort in these. Um, so itis meaning inflamed inflammation of. Okay, so mastoiditis is the inflammation of the air spaces within the mastoid portion of the temporal bone and this can pr uh, produce a very serious metal pro medical problem if not treated promptly. Um, and all these are listed on page 127, table um, 7-2. So, um, I'm going to go over to uh, 127 under sutures and fontanelles. So, two parietal bones give shape um, to the bulging top side of the skull and form a movable joints called suture within several bones. So, sutures are, they literally look like a suture in your skull. And these are not movable. It's just a separation in your skull. So, you have a lamb uh, doidal suture. This joins posterior margins of the parietal bones to the occipital bone. Squamous sutures join lateral margin of each parietal bone with the superior margin of the temporal bone into the lateral part of the sphenoid bone. Coronal suture joins the anterior margins of the parietal bones with the posterior margin of the frontal. And sagittal suture joins the uh, medial margins of the parietal margins to each other. And these you're going to have to look at on page 126, figure 7-9 because I can't paint a picture for you. Um, so you might be familiar with the soft spot on a baby's skull, just like we spoke of before. There are six fontanelles or areas where intramembranous ossification remains incomplete at birth. Um, they can also be identified by a clinician as an important diagnostic indication of the position of the baby's head before delivery. Uh, fontanelles fuse to form sutures before the baby is two years old. It's a long time to be having a soft head, which is why we have to be really careful with our toddlers because they're always getting into stuff, and that's going to go straight to their brain. Um, you know, if there's a separation in their skull. So now, um, here's the interesting fact. Your hy uh, hyoid bone on page 129 is the only bone not connected to any other bone in your body. It's actually connected to your tongue. Um, so unlike any other bones, it does not form a joint with any other bone of the skeleton. Uh, because the hyoid is so delicate, uh, it may help in forensic scientists to determine the cause of death um, in strangulation cases. So a fracture that pulls on the two arms of the hyoid inward may indicate that squeezing caused by hands grasps the neck forcefully, whereas spreading a part of the hyoid may be, uh, result from the force of a hanging accident incident. Um, so we're going down to vertebral column or spine. So vertebrae, um, the term vertebral column may conjure up a mental picture of the spine as this long single bone shaped as a column in the building, but it's very far from true. It's actually a series of 24 separate bones or vertebrae. It's connected in such a way that they form a flexible curved rod. So you have a cervical region, a thoracic region, and a lumbar region. Cervical is going to be the top, thoracic is going to be the middle, and lumbar is going to be, um, the bottom. Okay, so, um, its spinous process or spine, it's two transverse processes, and the whole is its center. This is called a vertebral foramen. The superior and inferior articular processes permitted limited and controlled movement between adjacent vertebrae. So <clears throat> I'm going to go on down to, um, let's see, at the top of each part of figure 713, we're now over on um, 
page 130. Kind of got to go back and forth. The first two cervical vertebrae have an unusual structure compared to the rest. And this shows the first cervical vertebrae called the atlas is a ring is made up of an anterior arch and a posterior arch. And the superior articular processes join with the processes called occipital condyles at the base of the skull. The second cervical vertebrae is the axis. And the axis has pointed dens, meaning tooth, that extends up to the curve of the atlas's anterior arch and act as a pivot around which um, the skull can swivel left and right. So this is another example of structure fits function. Now I'm going to go down to sacrum and coccyx. Um, there are two additional bones of the vertebral column located just between the just below the 24 vertebrae. In inference, the sacrum exists as five separate vertebrae and start to fuse together by age 18 and are completely fused by age 25 to 33. So likewise, three to five tiny tail vertebrae, um, vertebrae fuse to form a single coccyx by early adulthood. So about 26 bones of the vertebral column are illustrated in this photo. Spinal curvatures, um, if you've ever noticed uh, the four curves in your spine, you have a... Um, your neck and the small of your back curve slightly inward or forward, whereas the chest region of the spine are in the lowermost portion um, curved to the opposite direction. So those are normal curves. Uh, I actually have scoliosis, which means mine is turned to either the left or the right. Mine goes to the right, so that is unnormal. But these um, normal spinal curvatures are intended to hold your body the way that it's held. So convex and concave curvatures. When you look at the spine from the side, you'll see thoracic and sacral curves, and these are called convex curvatures because they're uh, rounded outward. The cervical and lumbar curves of the spine are called concave curvatures because they curve inward. So concave, they cave in. Um, so this is not true for a newborn baby spine. It forms a continuing convex curve called the primary uh, curvature from top to bottom, and gradually they uh, learn to hold their head up a reverse or concave curve develops in the neck, and later the baby learns to stand. Um, so the concave uh, cervical and lumbar curvatures are sometimes called secondary curvatures because they appear later in development than the primary and convex curvatures. Okay, so the spine needs to be a strong structure. It supports the head and is balanced on top of it, and the ribs and internal organs are suspended from and below it, uh, from it and in front, and the hips and legs are attached to and below it. So this is uh, very important. Going back to what we said in the chapter before, if something was to happen to this, um, it could cause you to become a paraplegic, quadriplegic. Um, it's a very, very important uh, structure in our body. So we're going to go to thir uh, thorax, 12 pairs of ribs, and the sternum breastbone, and the thorax thoracic vertebrae form a bony cage called the thoracic or chest. Each of the 12 pairs of ribs is attached posteriorly to a thoracic vertebrae. Also, all of the ribs except the lower two pairs are attached to the sternum and have anterior um, and posterior anchors. So you have true ribs and false ribs. Um, so true ribs being the ones that are attached and false ribs. Um, let me see. Uh, false ribs do not attach to the sternum. So I think they're also called floating ribs as well. Yes. Um, the first three. Um, see. False ribs pairs 8, 9, and 10 attached to the cartilages of rib pair 7. The last two pairs of false ribs, in contrast, are not attached to any costal cartilage but seem to float free in front, therefore giving their name floating ribs. Okay, so now we're going to look at the appendicular ske uh, skeleton. Of the 206 bones that form the skeleton as a whole, 126 are found in the appendicular subdivision. So note that the bones of the shoulder or pectoral girdle 
connect the bones of the arm, forearm, wrist, and hands to the axial skeleton of the thorax, and the hip or pelvic girdle connects to the bones of the thigh, leg, ankle, and foot um, to the axial skeleton of the pelvis. So we're going to go over to upper extremities. The scapular or shoulder blade and the uh, clavicle or collarbone compose the shoulder girdle and the uh, pectoral girdle. Um, the only direct point of attachment between these bones occurs in the sternoclavicular joint between the clavicle and the sternum or breastbone. The humerus is the long bone of the arm and the second longest bone of the body. It's attached to the scapula and on its proximal end where it's held in place, permitted to move by a group of muscles together called a rotator cuff. Um, and the distal end of it is the radius and the ulna. We know this because we take a radial pulse next to the radius. Okay, um, let's see. The rounded trochlea of the humerus fits into the tro uh, trochlear notch of the ulna to form a hinge-like structure that allows the elbow to bend or flex. And also, um, the bony process of the ulna, called the olecranon, um, fits nicely into a large depression in the posterior surface of the humerus, called the olecranon fossa. This arrangement prevents the hinge of the elbow to exceed beyond a straight arm position, a stability needed to hold objects officially. So this is going to keep your elbow from going back any farther it just goes in and straight okay so the wrist and the hand have more bones in them for their size than any other part of the body eight carpal or wrist bones five metacarpal bones um support the structure for the palm of the hand and 14 phalanges or finger bones uh 24 bones in all so now i'm going to go over to page 134 um there's a lot of bones at the upper extremities there's a table uh, 7-5 and this is going to give you all of this in um, shorter form. So I'm going to go over to lower extremity. The hip girdle or pelvic girdle connects the legs to the trunk. And the pelvic girdle as a whole consists of two large coxal bones. Um, and they're attached inferiorly to the sacrum of the vertebral column. This ring-like arrangement of bones provides a strong base of support for the torso and connects the lower extremities to the axial skeleton. Um, in the infant's body, each coxal uh, bone consists of three separate bones, the ilium, um, ischium, and pubis. And these bones grow together to become one coxal uh, bone in an adult. So just as the humerus is the only bone in the arm, the femur is the only uh, bone in the thigh. And it's the longest bone in the body and articulates proximately at the hip with the coxal bone in a deep cup-shaped uh, so uh, socket called the acetabulum. The articulation of the head and the femur in the cetabulum is more stable than the articulation of the head um, of the humerus with the scapula in the upper extremity. Um, distally, the femur articulates with the kneecap or patella and the tibia or shin bone. The tibia forms a rather sharp edge or crestal on the interior of the leg. Okay, so a slender, non-weight-bearing and rather fragile bone named the fibula lies along the outer or lateral border of the leg and two bones have the or toe bones have the same name as finger bones these are also phalanges so there is the same number of toe bones as finger bones a fact that might surprise you because toes are shorter than fingers but they're exactly the same so foot bones comparable to the meta, uh, metacarpals and carpals of the hand have slightly different names these are called metatarsals and tarsals in the foot just as um, each hand contains five metacarpal bones each foot contains five metatarsal bones However, the foot only has seven tarsal bones in contrast to the hand. In contrast to the hand's eight carpals, the largest tarsal bone is the calcaneus or heel bone, and the bones of the lower extremities um, are in table seven six. Um, 
let's see. Bones of the feet are held together in such ways to form springy lengthwise crosswise arches, and these provide great supporting strength in a highly stable base. So, um, two arches extend um, lengthwise direction in the foot. Uh, one lies on the inside part of the foot and is called the medial longitudinal arch, and the other lies on the outer edge of the foot and is named the lateral longitudinal arch. Um, another arch extends across the ball of the foot, and this is the transverse arch or metatarsal arch. These arches provide um, support and strength and stable base, and strong ligaments and leg muscle tendons normally hold the foot bones firmly in their arch positions. Um, sometimes we can get flat feet or fallen arches, and this is just when your foot um, is completely flat to the floor. Those arches have kind of given way. So now we're going to look at skeletal variations, uh, male and female differences. So... I'm going to flip over here. Well, I'm getting there. So male and female skeletal differences. The size, um, the male skeleton is usually going to be generally larger. In the shape of the pelvis, the male is going to have a uh, deeper pelvis and more narrow pelvis. And a female is going to have um, shallow and broad. And the size of the pelvic unit um, is because the female pelvic inlet it's generally wider, um, normally large enough for a baby's head to pass through. So this is specifically for childbirth. The pubic angle, um, the angle between pubic bones of the female is generally wide, wider also. Um, and then we're also going to look at age differences. Bone enlarges and becomes more ossified until maturity at age 25. And bones actively remodel or dissolve and rebuild in middle adulthood. Bones become less dense during elderly years. And environmental factors would include um, nutrition effects um, that nutrition affects growth and maintenance of bone tissue. Um, mechanical stress, including exercise, affects bone remodeling. And now we're going to move on to joints. So there's different kinds of joints. We have synarthrosis, which is no movement. This is a fibrous connective tissue that grows between articulating bones, for example, the sutures of the skull. Um, so these would be what we see in our brain or on our skull. Um, Amphiarthrosis or slight movement cartilage connecting articulating bones, for example, symphys pubis. Um, diathroses or free movement. Most joints belong to this class, actually. So you have the structure of these are freely movable joints. Joint capsule and ligaments hold adjoining bones together but permit movement at joint. Articular joint covers joint ends of bones where they form joints and other bones. Synovial membrane, this lines joint capsule and um, secretes lubricating fluid. Joint cavity is the space between the joint ends of bones. And bursa is a fluid-filled pouch that absorbs, uh, absorbs shock. So if somebody says they have bursitis, it's an infl inflammation of bursa between the joints. Um, and the functions of freely movable joints are uh, ball and socket, hinge, pivot, saddle, gliding, and condyloid. They allow different kinds of movements determined by the structure of um, each joint. So we are at the end of this chapter, page 143. So another thing that would be good to know is um, table 7-7, -7, flexion, extension, abduction, adduction, rotation, and circumduction, because those are probably going to be asked about. So um, as I'll say at the end of every chapter, I suggest that you read over the summary, do the review questions, the chapter test, and critical thinking, and good luck.